Morning, everyone. He is risen. Okay, wait, wait. I'm going to give you one more chance at this. A couple of you got this. He is risen. Third time's a charm. He is risen. There we go. I think everyone can hear you. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Uh, preschoolers, if you have kids in preschool, they can go downstairs this morning, so uh, you can make your way to the back, and uh, they've got that all sorted out. All right. Well, Easter, or as I like to call it, Resurrection Sunday, right? This is, we, this is the greatest day for the church because it signifies and celebrates and points to the greatest, I believe, the greatest event that ever happened in the history of this earth. Amen? Amen. There's a few amens. So a few years back, uh, Jess and I, we, we traveled to New York City. And as part of that trip, we, we did a bunch of sightseeing. And we, uh, we looked at or we sightseed uh, parts of Central Park. I mean, Central Park is massive. And so we just kind of went into parts of it. And we kind of, one day, we kind of walked into this, this section of Central Park, and, and we kind of stumble, uh, stumbled upon this um, thing on the ground, which I, I learned later was the Imagine Mosaic, which is a memorial to John Lennon. And as we're there, we're re- there's, there's all these people that are seated all around and standing, and they're all singing uh, Beatles songs, John Lennon songs. I think they, most of them were singing Imagine, actually and laying flowers, and I was like, this is kind of weird. Um, I was like, I mean, I, I like the Beatles, but I'm like, this feels kind of strange. And, and it was very somber, too, as they sang. And it was, it was like people were being emotionally moved as they were, like, worshiping John Lennon. And it seems strange, and it seems bizarre. If Jesus Christ died, and the resurrection never happened... That is exactly what we are like. Exactly what we're like. Simply a Jesus fan club. We're coming around, we're being moved by our emotions as we sing songs about a really influential rabbi who walked this earth 2,000 years ago, touched a lot of lives when he was here, lived to an ideal, and someone who we should emulate. That's Jesus if he never rose from the dead. The question of Jesus' resurrection is the paramount question for the church today. The paramount question. It is ground zero, if you will, when it comes to following the way of Jesus. Do we as the church today, this is a, and I'm not taking this question for granted, do we as the church today and all the generations in the church, do we believe with absolute certainty that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Because this is the question, folks, that every single person has to reconcile. Because the answer to that question, just that question, sets you on one of two paths for your life. To claim belief in that truth, okay, to sit up here and to claim and to sing, Jesus rose from the dead and live with it having little or no impact in our lives is completely incompatible with the gospel. Like it's not, it's actually not possible. So I've titled today, The Shocking and Amazing Claims of the Resurrection. 
Because if it is true that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised to life, then the implications are enormous. Because then everything Jesus said, everything he said, everything he did, everything is of the utmost importance. Or do we act as more of a Jesus fan club? We reminisce about the past. We like to gather because we like the social aspect of our time together. But whether or not the resurrection of Jesus actually happens, what is at stake if we are not sure of the claim of Jesus' resurrection? No one is going to bother those who want to gather to remember John Lennon and sing a few songs about him and this utopian future of peace that he uh, thought was going to come. No, one, no one's going to bother you about it. They're like, go for it. Gather. Do that. But many will be bothered by those who claim that Jesus was raised to life, is fully God, and is Lord over all things on this earth. And if you aren't absolutely convinced of that truth and willing to give your very life for it, your very life for it, why would you bother placing any importance of it in your life? Because if you're not sure, here's the thing, the price to be paid isn't worth it. Now, I can't prove to you right now, standing here, that Jesus rose from the dead. I can't. I can't, like, take you back in a time machine and take us back to when it all happened and go, see, look, there it is. Proof. I can't scientifically prove to you that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That it actually happened. But I want to examine scripture and I want to ask questions. And I want to state why I choose to believe that the resurrection of Jesus is true. And we should not feel uncomfortable about asking really deep questions about this subject and probing our beliefs and probing what we've been taught, probing what we believe. Because our lives, your very life hinges on this if it's true. Your very life. There's nothing more important in your life if this is true. So to have a conviction about it is important. And we can be too inclined to prefer the comfort of conviction in our lives. I just want to believe what I believe. The discomfort of doubt can be a good thing. Those who will challenge your thought process, those who will have you think critically about why you believe what you believe and why that is so. So this morning, we're going to walk through some of the details in Scripture, those that we read out of John 20 there, around the account of Jesus' resurrection, seeking truth as we ask questions this morning. So we're going to read it again, um, section by section, John 20. You can open up if you have your Bibles with you. John 20, verses 1 to 9. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that little detail, by the way, that John puts in there. Like, I'm faster than Peter, by the way. He bent over 
and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, (laughs) I love this third person, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. And then John puts in brackets, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So this, this is the shock of the empty tomb. So Jesus had been crucified on Friday. His body was taken down by a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, who owned a tomb, uh, and he was placed there. Now, Jesus had died a criminal's death. So he was, he was on the cross as a criminal, and his body would have been hastily taken off the cross after he had died. And so this request to place his body in this tomb would not have been a normal request. This was something that was very odd and kind of last minute where Joseph went and said, hey, can I take his body and, and place it in the tomb? And, and there was an honoring in that. Um, we read in scripture of, because Joseph of Arimathea thought he was looking for the kingdom to come. And so then after resting for the Sabbath, so all of, all of Saturday, Jesus' followers, the women, they rested And then it says Mary and two other women, Luke tells us that it was James' mother, Mary, and Salome, they go to the tomb early, really early Sunday morning, like between 3 and 6 a.m. they go to prepare Jesus' body with burial spices. Mark 16, 3 makes mention that the women actually on their way, they wonder how they're going to roll away the heavy stone. That's a good question. Like that's one of those questions we don't really have clarity on how that was going to happen. Perhaps they were going to ask the Roman guard with them to, to move it. We, we don't know. And so it's okay, right? That's that like, if someone says, well, how are they going to do that? I don't know. It's one of those things in scripture we're not exactly told. There, but the, there was no paradigm for bodily resurrection for the Jewish people. Like none. Not, not like this. So this wasn't something that was even remotely thought of. When Jesus died, the disciples and his followers would have realized that this idea of Jesus being the Messiah was over. They had backed the wrong horse, if you will. Everything Jesus said just wasn't going to happen. It was over. Jewish belief actually in the resurrection, if believing in the resurrection was tied to the belief that this would happen at the end of history, where God would come to judge the world, and the resurrection of the dead would be this large-scale event where everyone would be resurrected at once and God would establish his kingdom. That was the Jewish understanding of resurrection. This is what Martha refers to when Jesus says, Lazarus is going to rise again. And she's like, you know, I know. He's going to rise on the last day. He's going to rise in that resurrection of the dead. And then Jesus obviously turns everything on its head with Lazarus. But when Jesus died... No one was saying, oh, it's all right. He's going to be back in a few days. No one was saying, oh, it's all right. Like he's in heaven with the Lord. It's, it's all good. Take comfort. None of that was thought of. This, that was not within their framework. They were looking for God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus spoke of. Nobody had ever been resurrected to new life. 
I mean, there was the example of Enoch and there's Elijah in the Bible. Both of them were taken up into heaven. They didn't actually physically die on this earth. They didn't receive new bodies. There was no precedent for this. Even Mary's initial response to the shock of the empty tomb is really telling. She's like, we don't know where they've put him. They just thought that Jesus had somehow been moved. And so Peter and John get to the tomb and along with Mary and the other woman there, they begin to contemplate what they are seeing. And I want to I pause here and I want to consider the accounts of what is happening here. There's some really, there's actually some strange details here. I want to highlight three that provide strong evidence for the authenticity of this story. First, the fact that women are mentioned as the main witnesses. That was, now this isn't popular now, but in ancient cultures, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. If you were crafting a narrative to convince people that the resurrection of Jesus happened, you don't make the central first part of the story women giving witness. That's not something you would do in the ancient world. Second, the lack of spectacular details here. There's, there's no mention of how Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. We don't know. Like, like you'd think if there's an attempt to craft this narrative and to kind of, you know, paint this great story of how Jesus was rose, rose from the dead, you would want to have something in there of how was he actually physically resurrected. We don't know. There's no details there's no attempt to embellish. There's no attempt to... It's, it's quite not... Like, there's nothing really spectacular here in the details. Third, none of the gospel accounts of the resurrection speak of how it points to the Christian hope, the future Christian hope for resurrection. Do you ever notice that? Like, in the gospel accounts, there's none of that. Now, throughout the rest of the New Testament... This is a key point as the early church is working all of this out and what this means and what Jesus said and how this relates to us and to scripture, that's all being worked out. But the future hope for those in Christ Jesus did, did not get talked about in the gospel narratives. It's just not even mentioned. It's as if, it's only as the early church and the apostles, as they began to process what happened, that they began to realize this is what is to come. But the Gospels don't focus on this. It's really simple, actually. Jesus is raised. Oh, so he's the Messiah. He's, he's raised. Okay, so he's the Messiah. And he, therefore, he is Lord over all things. And we, as his followers, we have a job to do. That's really what the Gospels, the narrative they paint. This also gives substantial credibility to this belief that these accounts were actually recorded quite early from oral accounts, that the people around who had experienced this, there was, there was oral stories being told and that they were actually written down and recorded quite early. If, they had been, if these narratives had been invented, the stories could have been told way much better, like way better. So now as, as this group here, they're at the tomb, they begin to process the shock of the empty tomb and what it means. It mentions the burial clothes that would have been on Jesus' body, that he would have been wrapped in. And it was, the, it was the sight of those burial clothes that led, it says, led John to believe. It was those. Isn't that interesting? The burial clothes was what led John to go, this is true. 
Now, the scene is orderly, it's calm. There's very specific details here. The grave clothes are lying there, and the cloth for Jesus' head, it says, itself was folded up separate. Now, the word for folded up there also means twirled. It's as if John was seeing the grave clothes lying there, undisturbed as though still enfolding an actual body. They hadn't been disturbed. It's as John Stoddy talks about it, he compares it to a corellus, the shell from which a butterfly emerges and how the shell is left. And it's, a, it's as if the burial clothes are there in this kind of 3D shell and the body's not there. It's as if Jesus passed, was raised and passed through the grave clothes just like he would pass through doors and walls. So this is all happening. The others go back to their homes to process what's happening. Verse 9 there reveals how much of a loop this was throwing them for. Like they're going, they, they, they had, it says they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to, be, had to rise from the dead. And it speaks also to the validity of the gospel accounts. Right? They, weren't, they, they did not strategically craft this narrative with a bunch of Old Testament references. There's none. There's no Old Testament references in here about how Jesus was, was prophesied. None of that. But Mary, it says, goes on and says, she lingers at the tomb crying. Because now she didn't even have a body, the body of Jesus, to grieve over. She's like, where did he go? So let's read on. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So this is the wonder of Jesus' appearance. Mary Magdalene is the one, Mark's gospel tells us, that Jesus had delivered from severe demonic oppression. She had had seven demons cast out of her. She had been severely, severely demon oppressed and Jesus had set her free. And she's coming to grips with all what is happening and all of a sudden, it says there's these two angels that are seated there. They weren't there when Peter and John looked in the tomb and all of a sudden they're seated there and they said, they're asking her, why, like, why are you crying? Because they know what's happened right? She doesn't. Mary can't bring herself to mention Jesus's body even. She says, 
They've taken my Lord away. She doesn't even talk about a body. At this point, Mary turns and Jesus is standing there, but she said, it says she doesn't recognize him. Like, have you ever, like, there's these, it's when, like, when he's on the road uh, with the two disciples to Emmaus, later when he appears on the beach and the disciples are out fishing and they don't recognize him, like, there's these accounts where there's something incredible that happened to Jesus' body or that he's able to actually keep himself from being recognized in that moment. Like, she thinks he's the gardener. She knows who Jesus is but she doesn't recognize his body. And with one word, one word, Mary, Jesus reveals himself. I was, I was preparing this morning, I was praying a little bit early this morning, and I thought, you know what? Let's not move past that right there. That moment that's the moment, like so many of us have experienced, where Jesus calls our name. Dwayne. Diane. Steve. I, I, I was taken back to a moment in my life where I experienced that, where Jesus said, Paul. And it changes you. There's something in that moment that changes you. Once again, the fact that Jesus chose to reveal himself first to a woman is astonishing for the first century. It, does, it did nothing for the credibility of the early church in making up the resurrection story that they would put this as the first encounter. It doesn't make any sense in the first century to do this. If you're going to craft this narrative, put Peter and his story of redemption after he had denied Jesus, put that as the central part of the story. That's a good story. That's movie quality. If you want credibility. But that's not what this is about. This is about what actually happens. At this point, Mary turns and she, it says she holds on to Jesus Jesus was physically present. Okay, it wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a vision. He was physically present. She held on to his physical body. And after Jesus tells her to go and tell the others what she had seen, the disciples, they're in a room. It was locked. And Jesus suddenly appears among them. Like, boom, he's there. And John highlights that he shows them his hands that have the nails marks through them. He shows them his side where he was pierced, where blood and water ran out. He shows them. So he has a resurrected body, but he has the scars still on his resurrected, glorified body showing what had happened to him. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's, like, maybe it's the growth of CGI and special effects in the film industry, right? Like we watch all sorts of crazy movies that have all sorts of like incredible effects that actually aren't real, and, but they do a great job of technology of making them look really real. And so maybe we're like, we're hearing this and we're like, okay, so Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, he's passing through walls and doors, completely new physical body. Just sounds like another Avengers movie. Sounds like something that you would do with CGI. Except, here's the thing. For the, this is the thing. In the claim of the Gospels, this actually happened. 
It wasn't with a green screen. It wasn't with a computer. It was physically happening on this earth that Jesus, this happened to Jesus. Think about that. This is the claim of the resurrection. And the reality of Jesus' resurrected physical body, his resurrected physical body is a big part of the focus. This is significant when considering the validity of the claims of the resurrection. When Jesus died, Jewish tradition called for the body to be wrapped up in these grave clothes. They put all sorts of spices in these grave clothes because then the body was placed in a tomb and it would start to decompose and these spices were put around the body to help with the odor, right? And so they would allow the body to decompose in the tomb over a period of time And then eventually, when the body had decomposed, they would go in, they would collect the bones, they would gather them, they would put them in an ossuary, and they would give them to the family for safekeeping. For those claiming to have seen Jesus without the empty tomb, that was just foolish. Like to start going around and saying Jesus has been raised from the dead and he is ascended and all this stuff is like, what are you talking about? He's in the tomb. His body and then his bones eventually would have been presented as clear evidence that this was all a big fabrication, that people were just having hallucinations or whatever. But that never happened. Okay, that never happened. As the account of Jesus' resurrection spread, there is no evidence that it could ever be refuted or revealed as a hoax. The resurrection of Jesus with a new physically glorified body became a major, major point of emphasis for his followers and the early church. So there was this pagan physician, Galen, lived in the second century, wrote some stuff. He noted that belief in bodily resurrection was one of two central things that defined Christians. The other, he said, being remarkable sexual restraint. There, there, was, okay, there was no belief in Judaism of the Messiah dying and then raising from the dead. Jesus as a resurrected Messiah was not expected Luke tells us that it's only after the angels at the tomb remind the women of Jesus' words, promising that he would raise again, that they then go, oh, they begin to realize after the angels told them, oh yeah, that's what Jesus said. They, They didn't, see, Jesus was saying stuff throughout his ministry and it was just going over the heads of his followers because they had no grid, no paradigm that this is what was gonna happen. And his new body, while clearly physical, he ate, he, t- he was touched, and had also been transformed. He wasn't always recognizable, like we said. He wasn't hindered by material objects such as walls. Like, he could walk through that wall. <laughs> That's really cool. There are no Old Testament texts that speak of this kind of body. None. Okay, let's read on. Five verses. Verse 24. I want to talk about Thomas a little bit. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So he wasn't in the upper room when he came and appeared. 
So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he's like, uh, what does he say? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. This is all a big fallacy, basically is what Thomas is saying. A week later, a week, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So this is the realization of Jesus' resurrection. The need to see Jesus and to touch his physical body was paramount for Thomas. There's, this is where the idiom comes, doubting Thomas, right? That we've, through the centuries, has kind of taken root. He would not believe any account of Jesus being raised from the dead until he could touch and see evidence of his new physical body. With Jesus, he was willing to provide the proof. He invited Thomas to put his fingers through the nail holes in his hands. He invited him to actually put his hand into his side and to, to see that this actually had happened. Stop doubting, Thomas. Believe. And, and this is the moment of realization for Thomas that poses the most crucial of questions for him and for us. In light of this new information, how do you respond to Jesus? How? What are the implications? What does it mean to believe? Now what? These are the questions that are presented to every one of us. And Thomas's words here, they record a monumental shift that changes the entire course of his life. He'd be like, if I don't see it, I will never believe to my Lord and my God. And that changed the course of his life. He went on to be the apostle that went into India and spread the gospel in India and is believed to have died in 72 AD in that nation. John says after this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If the physical resurrection of Jesus happens, it is the single greatest moment in the history of the world. It has the greatest implications for your life. Why? Because, again, if Jesus rose from the dead, if he defeated the power of death, if he was raised to new life by his Father and lives for eternity, then everything he said and everything he did matters. It's of the utmost importance for us. And it leaves us to answer what does this mean if we profess to be followers of Jesus? 
So Jordan Peterson, he's a, a renowned clinical psychologist, um, actually Canadian. He wrote a very um, well-known book called 12 Rules for Life. Just really just, a, he's a really smart guy. But he's, he's said and written a lot about morality and ethics. Now, he doesn't profess to follow Christ, but he's spoken a lot over the years and in his books about Christian ideals, and he's explored a lot of that in relation to morality and ethics. And last month on his podcast, he was talking about this and about morality, and he became very, very emotional as he considered the possibility of Jesus' existence and what it would mean. And so he was talking, this is what he said. He said, it's oddly plausible, but I still don't know what to make of it because it's too terrifying a reality to believe. I now, I even know, I don't, sorry, I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. Then he went on, he said this, there's no limit to what would happen if you acted like God existed. It may be reasonable to say to believers, you aren't sufficiently transformed for me to believe that you believe in God or that you believe the story that you're telling me. The way you live isn't sufficient testament to the truth. Perhaps it's really, really important to consider how those who claim to have experienced the resurrection of Jesus here in Scripture, how they responded and how they lived. Perhaps that provides the model for us as followers of Jesus. And I believe that it does. I believe that it does. Radical commitment. Now, radical in the very definition of the word meaning, relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, here referring to the way of Jesus. So radical commitment. This is what I believe Scripture shows us. It's radical commitment to the body of Christ, radical commitment to discipleship, and to reaching the world around us. I think it's that simple and yet that profound. I'm convinced that that is the paramount way to live the way of Jesus for our lives. Radical commitment to the body of Christ, devoted, as Acts 2.42 says, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that's community, and to prayer. This means consistent and intentional presence in the body committed to serving and growing in community centered around Jesus. Community that is centered totally on Jesus and not on anything else. Radical commitment to discipleship, meaning following the way of Jesus, becoming like Jesus, Christ being formed in us, abiding in Jesus, learning what that means to live out, embracing being an apprentice to the way of Jesus developing spiritual habits and rhythms in our lives that create environments for transformation and for growth. We're pursuing Jesus above all things. And third, radical commitment to reaching the world around us. Witness, mission, lives defined and shaped by the gospel and our apprenticeship to Jesus. Jesus told us, he gave us the mandate, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the mandate. Go, make disciples, be discipled, be a disciple, and go and make disciples. Go into the world. Be known by your love for the church. Never forget that. Lives defined by the gospel and living and sharing our faith. That's what the early church, that's how they responded to the resurrection of Jesus. So this is why I'm I'm putting before us, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, if it's true, it's a game changer. If the claims of the gospel are true, it is a game changer for our lives. It can't be anything but that. How could that not totally define the totality of our lives? It did for the early church. It did. It did for every single one of the apostles. They all they were willing to die for this. So I want to give you the opportunity this morning to respond. An invitation. If you believe that the resurrection of Jesus is true, then to surrender your life and to commit your life to the way of Jesus. That's, that's the invitation. Surrender to Jesus and to his way. So I'm going I'm to invite us, we're going to pray. invite you to, to pray with me. Father, we want to thank you that you, from the foundation of the world, that this was your plan. This was your plan to redeem mankind, to bring us into relationship with you. This was your will that Jesus submitted and surrendered himself to. Father, you desired to bring us into relationship, and there was no other way. There was no other way. We were lost, broken, in the depths of sin. Jesus, we thank you that you came. You lived a perfect, sinless life. You showed us the Father, and you submitted to his will. You surrendered yourself. You suffered. You died. You were buried. But you rose again. And we submit and we surrender our lives to you, Jesus, as your word calls us to. We live for you. We don't live for ourselves. We live for you, Jesus. That is the call of the gospel. And so we surrender. We yield ourselves. We say, Jesus, have your way in our lives. Jesus, would you come and would you work on us? Would you heal and mend the brokenness in us? The things in us that need your healing and your transformation. Would you pour your spirit out into us more and more and more? The same power, the same spirit that raised you from the dead, Jesus, it says lives in us. And so we 
We ask you, God, to work powerfully and transformationally in us because that is what your word invites us into. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you are above all things, that you've been raised to life. You're seated above all things in the heavenly places. Everything is below you. Everything. You are the head over all things. We submit ourselves to you, Jesus, and to your glorious, glorious truth. Amen.